All right, good morning. Everybody good? Everybody good? Okay. Uh, yeah, so um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start off this morning. I, I forgot to do this for a service. I like just went right into the next thing. Um, but, uh, but we're going to start off with the Jesus Creed, the Shema this morning. So if you would, if you would stand with me, a bit of an icebreaker. This, is, this morning is going to be a little more interactive, if you will. So this should, this should uh, wet your whistle for that and, and break the ice there. Um, so you know what to do. And remember, as the people of God, you do it with vigor and, and with meaning and passion, not like American evangelicals, like we... Pretend at least you're the people of God, um, and you are proclaiming this so that the world can hear. So we're going to start off. Repeat after me. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Elohinu. Adonai Echad. Okay, and together. Ready? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, this morning um, is a special morning that I've been waiting for for a long time. And uh, we have a guest speaker today. Um, it is Dr. Scott McKnight. Um, um, he has written... Tons and tons of books. I mean, I logged on Amazon once and I typed in Scott McKnight and there was some like 75 something books that you either wrote or edited. Um, and I've been reading them for a very long time. They've helped me through intense, difficult times of deconstruction. Um, and, uh, and for the last few years, I've been studying under his, his teaching. So um, um, last week, actually last week on the History Channel, he had a show. There was a, a Jesus show and he was sort of the, the, the person, you know, teaching them all this uh, all that stuff, you know, all that stuff. Um, and uh, he's going to be much more um, eloquent than I am right now. Um, so um, this morning, it is, it is a special treat. He's going to teach us the book of Philemon. Um, and by the time you're done this morning, you will, you will fully understand how to read an entire book of the Bible. Um, and it should be wildly inspiring. Um, and he's going to invite you to play along and to, to sort of take part in what he's doing. So make sure... You do that and answer loudly when it calls for you, all right? So, um, ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm watermark welcome to my teacher, Scott McKnight. Well, we're very excited to be with you today. I do want to say that the History Channel Jesus His Life program begins tomorrow evening uh, for four weeks in a row. And I think it's one of the only times at this time of year that a major network produces something that is not against the faith, but actually for the faith. So I think you'll really enjoy it. It's about different characters in the Gospels and their, how they looked at Jesus. Very creative and very well done. So, uh, but I want to say thanks for this invitation to be here. Uh, it's really fun for me as one of Tommy's teachers at Northern Seminary. That's an advertisement. <laughs> we welcome all tuition-paying students. <laughs> no scholarships. <laughs> We're Christians. Uh, it's really fun to see Tommy and, and, and the music. You know, we know about this about him, but uh, this was really special for me. So I'm, uh, I'm honored to hear Tommy sing. He is a very... Good student to have in class. Artistic students think for themselves. So even when I think I've got a really good point, he might not totally agree. 
but he says so in gentle ways, and uh, he's very good with the class, uh, getting the class to talk, and we were just talking about this this morning. He's in a class of introverts, and um, he's the one who has something to say about everything because the others don't have anything to say about anything. <laughs> but there's only a couple of them in the class that participate that much, so he's, he's uh, known to all of us. So thank you. This is... Um, we live in a culture, this, these lights are bright, I wish I had a, you know, the, you know your drummer is really good, except there's one thing, he needs a Cubs hat. <laughs> God loves the Cubs. <laughs> um, we live in a culture right now that is fragmented, polarized, and seemingly at one another's throats. Uh, and it's, it can be very discouraging even to turn on the news. So we are facing as Christians the challenge of difference, the challenge of diversity. It can be racial and ethnic diversity that is growing in the United States, and there isn't anything that we're going to do about it. This is America. It is what it is. And we as Christians live in our culture in a, new, in a new context. We live with economic and status differences. We live in a culture where there are red states and blue states. But even more tense-filled are states that have red counties and blue counties. And uh, I live in one of those states, in the state of Illinois. I think the question we need to be asking is not how to make our state blue or red or make our county red or blue, but how do we as Christians live in this kind of cultural tension? What can we do in our culture that would show the world that we are not at war with fellow Americans, but that we are peacemaking people who can lead towards solutions and radical resolutions that can change our culture. Well, I think we all would want to do that, but how? What do we do to make this kind of difference in our culture? I think the question we have to ask is where can we begin to make this kind of difference? Some people think what we need is better ideas. The Apostle Paul had a really good idea. And it's found in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. Now, he didn't mean Jews became Greeks or that Greeks became Jews. He meant that being Jewish and being Greek or Gentile was a good thing, but you were going to transcend it in, in special ways. And he said in He said, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. This is an unbelievable statement. In the Roman Empire, to say that there is neither slave nor free is to make a radical, almost anarchic type statement. To say that being free or being a slave doesn't matter is just incomprehensible in the Roman world. And then quoting from Genesis 1, Paul said, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female. And what Paul was saying is, 
we recognize our differences. We may celebrate those differences. He wasn't asking men to become women and women to become men or to be neither. He was saying we can transcend our differences in a greater unity. Not by eliminating differences, but celebrating them into unity. But he says we are all one in Christ. And that is a great idea. It's an idea. C.S. Lewis once talked about the idea of forgiveness when he said this. This is a great statement. All of C.S. Lewis's statements are great. He said, forgiveness is such a lovely idea until you have someone to forgive. Right? I believe in forgiveness, but I'm not forgiving her. Ever. Isn't that the way we feel at times? So unity in Christ is such a great idea until you have my neighbor or until you have to participate in this church committee with that person. Then let's ask them to change churches or move to Georgia or something like that. (laughs) What Paul did, other than just have great ideas, is he had actions that embodied the ideas that attempted to implement ideas. In fact, sometimes I think Paul's ideas were attempts to make his his actions understandable. So it's almost like at times Paul knew we should get along. I need a theology that helps us get along. Sometimes we think it's always the other day, ideas then actions. I think Paul learned through actions that ideas matter. So today, I want to look at a letter that we often ignore. It's a short little letter, just before Hebrews, sort of tacked on the end of the Pauline letters, and it's ignored for two reasons. One, it's at the back of all those Pauline letters, and short, and the other thing, it's not Romans, and since Romans matters the most, let's forget about Philemon. And yet, There's something poignant about beginning the Pauline letter collection with Romans and ending with Philemon because Philemon might be the best example of the theology of Romans that Paul ever wrote. So we're going to look at Philemon. What is Philemon about? It's a letter by the Apostle Paul who is a church-planting missionary who has spent most of his mission in the country of Turkey. Now, we don't often think of Turkey as the center of first century Christianity, but it was. It wasn't Rome, not yet, and it wasn't Greece, not yet. It was Turkey, and Paul moved the the mission of the gospel of the church planning work, moved from Jerusalem to Antioch and Syria, and then all the way across Turkey to Ephesus. Now, Ephesus in the first century was an absolutely gorgeous, world-class city. And if you ever get a chance to go on a Bible tour and go to Ephesus, you will say, I'm glad I've been to Ephesus. It was a beautiful port city. And Paul is, all his missionary work centers there. So he sends people from Ephesus up a little bit into the Lycus Valley, which is not too far away, three days walk. uh, And that is... Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis, 
Um, Sardis is not too far uh, away. And so the seven churches of the book of Revelation and some of the other churches that Paul established are all centered in the city of Ephesus. And then Paul eventually moves into Greece and then uh, ends up in Rome. So Paul is a missionary, and he sends a letter to a man named named Philemon. Philemon is a slave owner. This is not the way we often describe him, but he's a slave owner. And he has probably a pretty sizable home in the city of Colossae. Colossae has been uh, never archaeologically uncovered. It's nothing but a great big green grassy hill. It's big, but it's still grassy. Uh, Professors in Australia and at uh, Pamukkale University uh, near uh, uh, Colossae own the rights to the archaeological dig, but but Turkey as a state is not giving them the freedom to dig there yet. He writes a letter to Philemon about a slave by the name of Onesimus. All right, Onesimus, um, in the new translation by N.T. Wright called the Kingdom New Testament, is translated Mr. Useful. Not exactly the name that you want to give your son. Useful. I mean, try that. The hospital probably won't even let you do it. All right? And try useless. That'd be even worse. All right? So his name is Useful, Onesimus. And it's important to understand that this is the attempt by Paul to work out what it means to have neither slave nor free. Approximately 30% of the Roman Empire is slaves. Every year, think about this, in the city of Rome, in the Forum, by the temple of Castor and Pollux, there was a great big mound like this, a great big stage, where they sold daily, on every, in every year, 250,000 slaves. Exposed, physically, naked, with a little necklace around their neck, and a sign that listed their strengths and weaknesses, so that you wouldn't be sued if you sold a slave without proper information. We don't know how Onesimus became a slave, but most slaves were born into slavery. So it was always to the advantage of a slave owner like Philemon to have female slaves who could produce slaves, children, who could be sold or who could be used in their own family business as the family business continued to grow. Slavery in the first century, uh, unlike New World slavery in colonial America, It was not connected to race, but to status. You could not look at a person and say, that's a slave. Uh, They they looked like ordinary poor Romans and Greeks and and people in Turkey. So it wasn't racial. it, It wasn't ethnic. It was about status. A slave is by definition a means, slavery is a means of securing and maintaining an involuntary labor force by a group of people in society that monopolizes political and economic power. So a slave is exploited labor by Philemon 
exploiting Onesimus for the sake of privilege and power and economic strength by Philemon. This is who Paul wrote this letter to. Family life for a slave was very, very difficult. If your master, if Philemon, we don't know much about this guy. If he was a nice guy, the slaves probably had a decent life. Not a great life, but a decent life. If he was mean, like some football coaches, if he was mean, then the slave had a horrible life and no recourse to justice. Slave males, like Onesimus, were always called legally classified as boys. Because when a slave, when a, when a, a man... In the Roman Empire, the Greek world, the Turkish world, when they became adults and they became males and men as legal status, they had the right to marry and they had the right of inheritance and ownership. So slave males were kept boys legally so they could never marry and never have children that they owned and therefore never be able to pass on rights of inheritance, no ownership. So it is fundamental to understand that, that Onesimus is a boy legally. He cannot do anything on his own. But people like Philemon, there's, there's whole books about this in the Roman Empire in the first, from the first century period. Uh, slave owners learn that the best way to get slaves to operate effectively and efficiently economically was to keep them happy. So they gave slave males women, sort of like a marriage, but not a marriage. Their children were owned by the slave owner, but it kept the men controlled, and then they would do their work. And it, kept, it gave them a sort of pseudo-family. And this is the world in which Onesimus grows up. Slaves could be traded. And this was one of the early Christian letters by Paul is he thinks slave trading is immoral. So Paul is against slave trading. A few more things about Onesimus. He's from Colossae. The letter to Colossians chapter 4 mentions Onesimus again, and we know he's from Colossae. We know that he was a slave, and we know that he probably ran away. Let me explain this. There were two categories in the first century for a sort of runaway. One of them is called a fugitivus. That's the Latin word, the Roman word for a fugitive. Fugitives run away to escape and to be gone forever. Onesimus has traditionally been understood as a fugitivus or a fugitive. But there's another category called an arrow. An arrow was someone who ran away to find an advocate because they couldn't find advocate. He, say, Onesimus couldn't find an advocate with Philemon. So he runs away to find someone who will be an advocate with Philemon on his behalf. All right? I'm about 55% confident that he was a fugitive and not an arrow. But some days when I wake up, I think, well, maybe he was an arrow. But I'm a professor, so I'm supposed to know, so I do know. (laughs) He's a runaway, all right? 
We also know that he was a convert to, to Jesus. And as a convert, he becomes Paul's close friend. This is a little bit of the social context, the dynamic of this letter, when Paul sends this letter. But let me explain something about letter writing in the first century. Paul did not write Philemon so that I could preach a sermon about Philemon in Tampa. We're in Tampa. Is this Tampa? All right. I saw a sem- old Seminole or something like that. I thought, well, this might be a different town. I'm not sure where we are. Okay. He did not write this letter so that preachers could expound the text for weeks and weeks and weeks. He wrote this letter so that Philemon would be persuaded about something about Onesimus. And when this letter was read publicly, the person who read the letter didn't go like this. Philemon. A letter of, and so they, they didn't stumble over the words. Paul, in fact, we think the, the letter carrier who read the letter to Philemon in a small house, we think the man's name was Tychicus, who was a letter courier for Paul on Colossae. And when he, when he wrote this letter with Timothy, Paul would have told Tychicus, now listen, when you read these verses, he didn't say verses, you know, he didn't have verses. When you read these lines, I want you to look Philemon right in the eyes and stop right here. Let him think about him a while. Don't let him off the hook. And when you read these lines, look at the slaves in the household. And make sure they know you're in their corner. Now, don't tell them up front where we're going. Just read the letter. So Tychicus was coached and mentored to read this letter in a way that was compelling. And the point of of the whole letter is to put Philemon in a corner so that he will make the right decision, which means Paul's decision. And it really is a masterful letter When it comes to rhetoric, he is appealing to him and trying to get him to come to his side. All right. Now, there's one other point, and Tommy asked me about this, so I'll say it now. There was a bishop in Ephesus at the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century, named Onesimus. And people all want to know, was the Onesimus of this letter the Onesimus who became the bishop? Tommy, what was in your sermon? He was? Okay, so he was. Okay. It'd have been a mighty old bishop, that's for sure. Okay, maybe. I li- it makes for a great sermon. And, uh, and I've preached that one myself, Tommy. So I, I don't know, but uh, maybe. All right. Okay. Is that okay? Is that all right? All right. I still have to grade your papers, so you're going you're gonna to have to be nice to me. Okay. So I want to look at this letter. Now, as I said, okay, as I said, this letter was performed, and the audience in this house didn't sit there like Anglicans with their hands under their butt 
and a Mona Lisa smile, pretending like they were listening to a sermon. They were fully engaged. So they were talking back. They were charismatic, Pentecostal, African-American, call-and-response type people. Not like us. You're going to sit there and be nice? That's not a first century. So when, they, when Paul said something, and the, the letter writer was seen by the audience as Paul in person, when the, letter writer is, or when the letter reader is reading this, the audience is responding. If they like it, they say so. If they don't like it, they say so. And there were two ways you could respond in the first century. Some people said, Amen. No one said amen. (laughs) Most of them said when they liked it, they went dilly dilly. (laughs) You know, that's a first century saying of Jesus that the commercials are using now. You you think they made that up today. So so as we're reading this letter, you're going to be Onesimus' team. You're all for Onesimus. So any time that what is read sounds like something you would like for Onesimus because you're all implicated in whatever happens. If he's, if he's set free, you're, you're set free too. And if he's in trouble, you're in trouble. So you want to be in his corner. So every time I read something that you, you like for Onesimus, you say dilly dilly. Don't say amen. It sounds too religious, right? And you are pro-Philemon. So every time something comes out that sounds good for Philemon, you don't say amen, you say dilly-dilly. Okay? I right, practice. Dilly-dilly. You're pretty good. <laughs> You're going to lose. You're going to lose. Okay. Somebody in the front voice got some deep baritones. Okay. So Tychicus comes in the house. Can I go over here? I like that because I'm out of that light. Now I can, hey, there's people in here. All right, not just lights. Okay, so Tychicus comes in the room with Onesimus in the house, and it probably where he read this letter would not have been any bigger than this stage. And in the middle probably was an atrium where a roof would dispense, would be shaped so that the water, when it rained, would come into that area. So the middle would have been taken up. All right, so we're all the stands and everything. Tommy's guitar with holes in it. I like that. I mean, that that's like uh, Willie. Willie was Willie Nelson's guitar. I think that's pretty good. Okay, so he comes in. He comes in. Tychicus and Onesimus, and when they come in the room, what happens to Philemon's people when they see Onesimus? They don't say dilly dilly. They go. What in the world? But you over here are going, yeah, you like that. Okay, so they come in the room, and somehow they engage with Philemon to let him know that a letter has been sent by the Apostle Paul to Philemon. And Philemon's going, cool. Apostle writes me a private letter. What he didn't know is we're going to be talking about it 2,000 years later. And putting him in a corner every week. (laughs) Starts out the letter. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. This is the only time Paul ever began a letter 
like that. He always begins his letter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he calls himself a prisoner. He's already pleading for sympathy. And Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend, the NIV translation, friend, come on. This word means the one I love, all right? It's more than, there's a Greek word for friend. It's not here. This is Philemon, the one I love, and a fellow worker, also to Aphia. Yeah, I know. Nobody knows who Aphia is. <laughs> to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. Now, scholars think they know who these are, but they don't. Aphia could be the wife of Philemon. And Archippus could be their son. But we don't know that. They could be fellow slaves. And that's how much we know. And to the church that meets in your home. Now listen to this. This is a letter by the Apostle Paul to Philemon that's going to be read publicly in the church, and it's all about Philemon, and Paul is going to put him on the hot seat in the dock, legally. It's a powerful letter. Grace and peace to you, Philemon, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Much better audience the second time around than the first, okay? (laughs) This is something I like about this letter. Tychicus and Onesimus know the whole content of the letter. Nobody else knows. Although I think Onesimus cheated and told his fellow slaves. Okay? That's what happens. But they are listening to this letter as it's being read with some suspense, wondering how Philemon is going to respond. It's sort of like children who know what dad is giving to mom for Christmas and mom doesn't know, and they're kind of giggling, open it up. And they've been doing everything they can not to tell mom what's in that box. And that's Onesimus and Tychicus, as this letter is being read. They're excited about what can be said, but nervous at the same time, knowing that all the power is going to be in Philemon's hand. I always, Paul says, thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. He feels good about himself. Because I hear about your love for all his holy people. Don't forget that word, all. It's going to come back to haunt the guy. And your faith in the Lord Jesus. Okay, let's try that again. You're kind of fading. The basketball games have not started yet, so it's all right. Because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. Now Paul goes abstract. That's because the whole message of the letter is found in verse 6, but he doesn't say it concretely and directly. He says it indirectly and abstractly. I pray that your, this is Philemon, that your partnership with us, Paul, and his fellow workers in the faith may be effective 
and deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. It's a light dilly-dilly. Because you don't know exactly what he means, and we don't, but, but Onesimus knows, and Tychicus knows. They know that that is an unpacking of the whole letter. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement. Because you, brother, he loves to be called brother by Paul, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. That's good. Now, that's exactly how Philemon feels here. He has been stroked by the Apostle Paul in public. Don't think that this isn't rhetorically clever. He's setting him up for a real surprise. It's it's important. For Paul to persuade Philemon of what it means for there to be neither slave nor free in a church. Therefore, this is oh so clever, oh so parent-like. Although in Christ, I think he would have told Tychicus, lay it on thick. Although in Christ, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Yeah, maybe, maybe, (laughs) maybe. You know, when you tell people, I could order you, but I'm not, you just ordered them. (laughs) Didn't you? As your mother, I could tell you to do this, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say, be an adult, which means do what I tell you. (laughs) Correct. It is now, Paul pleads for sympathy. So everybody in the room is going to go, ooh. It is none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Yeah, that's right. We're all on, we're all on Paul's side now. That I appeal to you, now listen to this language, for my son Onesimus. For my son Onesimus. What do you call him? That's critical language. Now, Paul actually does not use the technical word for son. He uses, that's, the Greek word is huios. He uses the Greek word technon, which is the word Paul uses for people he leads to Christ and nurtures into apostolic ministries. So this is big time language. He's just called Mr. Useful, my child in the faith. There was more than that going on. My child in the faith. <laughs> That's good. Who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you. Come on. You, you, you're, me, you're madder than that. Formerly, he was useless to you. But now he's become useful both to me and to you. I am sending him who is my very heart. Paul wrote in the letter, I heart Onesimus. He drew a heart and he filled it in with red ink. No, he didn't. I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. And you're going, uh, ooh, 
Okay, we'll try it again. I am sending him back to you. You're wondering, you're wondering, and you're implicated. If he comes back on good terms, you're going, yeah. If it's bad terms, you're in trouble as well. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take, now listen to this, so that the slave Onesimus could take your Philemon, the slave owner's place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. This slave has become a minister of the gospel along with the Apostle Paul. And he is so effective that Paul thinks he's equivalent to Philemon in helping in the ministry. But I did not want to do anything without your consent. You like that idea. The power's in your hands. So that any favor, now this word favor, you know, do someone a favor, that sounds a little shady. This is a word that an act of grace on Paul on on Philemon's part, so that any act of grace that you would do would not seem forced, but would seem voluntary. You want to do this on your own choice. You don't want to be forced into this. Now Paul becomes quasi Calvinist. Not quite there. Not quite sure enough. Perhaps. And now he starts to speak of what God is doing with this circumstance. Perhaps the reason he was separated by God from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. And you go, "Mm, not so sure about that. Now listen to this. You're going to erupt here. You're going to have to stand up and clap on this one. So that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave. They're not following your lead there. But better than a slave, as a dear brother. Now think of this. Onesimus has become sibling to Philemon. That is radical. Unbelievable action to do this, to take this slave and put him over here with someone who's free, who maybe is a Roman citizen, and to make him an equal. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul says to the slave owners, treat your slaves, the NIV says, fairly. The Greek word means equally. And I suggest that there's a difference between fairness and equality. And he wants him to be treated as a sibling in Christ. Brothers and sisters are equals. Even there can be hierarchy in a first century Roman family. But they are still equal as family members. No longer as a slave. Better than a slave. As a dear friend, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me. And even dearer to you. That's about how excited he was about this. (laughs) Both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Now the letter has reached its climactic moment. This is the action that Christians can enact 
and embody that can make a huge difference in our culture today. So if you consider me a partner, remember that word partnership? I told you it was abstract. It's now getting real clear. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. What do you think, Philemon? Mm, Not very Christian yet. So welcome him back. Receive him into the family. This is the technical language, bringing people to the table to eat with the family. Amazing expression. The whole letter hinges on Philemon, the appeal to Philemon to welcome Onesimus back. And Paul says, I know when he left, he stole things. Because that's what fugitives do. Food and possessions and maybe money. If he's done any wrong, Paul says, or owes you anything, charge it to me. You're okay with that one. Now Paul picks up the letter himself for the first time. And he begins to write in his own handwriting, which in Galatians tells us it doesn't look like it was very good. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had the worst handwriting I've ever seen in my life. No wonder it took him 50 years to get everything translated. (laughs) I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. That means I will pay it back. It's an IOU. Here's my signature. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. This is a a potent statement by Paul. You became, he says to Philemon, a believer because of the Pauline mission of gospeling in in Western Asia Minor. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Remember when he talked about heart and refreshing? Now Paul wants to be refreshed, which means welcome him back. Now Paul uses his strongest expression. Remember he said, although in Christ I could order you, which is a way of ordering but not ordering. Now he says, confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And now Paul has a zinger. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me. Because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. So he says to Philemon, you've been praying for me to be released from prison? It's going to happen. And the first thing I'm doing, I'm coming to Colossae. And I'm going to stay in your house. And the first thing I'm going to ask is, how's Onesimus? So this ending little letter is potent. Epaphras, Paul ends the letter who was the founder of the church in Colossae, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus sends you greetings, as do Mark, the gospel writer, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, the other gospel writer, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. All right. Quite a letter. Quite a performance that Tychicus put on Philemon putting him in the corner 
with no place to go in this small room, saying, are you going to embrace the gospel of neither slave nor free or not? It's all determined by whether you're going to welcome him to the table. You and I have a challenge today, and that challenge is to figure out who are the Onesimuses in our life. Who are the people that we don't like, that we need to be welcoming because they are in Christ? We should not be more faithful than God. If God accepts them in Christ, we accept them in Christ. So I don't know the particular people that you're having trouble with, Red County, Blue County, Baptist, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, whatever. I don't know if it's people from Georgia or people from Texas or Illinois. I know this, that you and I as Christians live in a divided culture and we have the wherewithal in Christ to transcend these differences. And we do it at coffee and at meals and at picnics and on the beach when we welcome other people into our lives that otherwise would not be welcome. Thank you. Dilly dilly. Dilly dilly. All right. Thank you. If, if they start saying dilly dilly while I'm preaching, it's not going to go well. Um, uh, all right. So we're going to take communion. Uh, if you're not familiar with, with our church gatherings and what we do, we take communion every single week. Uh, our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and, and gather the elements and spread around the room. There are two elements. There is, there's bread and there's wine. Um, it's very simple. They're just common things. Um, it is a symbol of how we believe salvation enters into this world, the, uh, the body of Christ, um, the divine incarnate, the body of Christ broken and poured out uh, for you in a, in a divine act of love and sacrifice and reconciliation and forgiveness, um, likening himself to us in all of our sufferings. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, I don't care what denomination you're from or uh, what we agree or disagree upon, uh, when we put the communion table out, that is for you. Um, However pious you feel your life is or however uh, sinful you feel your life is, however much shame you think you're carrying, uh, when we come to the table, we all receive the same thing. The body of Christ is broken for you. The blood of Christ is poured out for you. And so we're going to take a minute, and I'll pray. Um, and then we'll, uh, we'll give you a few minutes um, uh, to pray, and then please take communion with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Um, I ask that you would uh, continue to bind us together in love and hope, um, continue to create a, uh, in us the hearts that you want us to have, the hearts that are like yours, make us into the people that you want us to be, and uh, teach us day by day um, to become more and more your people who act as your body in this world. In your name, amen. Take a minute, talk to Jesus.